This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begay's filling in for Gil Gross. On this edition of America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio, Juneteenth, or Freedom Day as it has come to be known to black Americans. June 19th marks the anniversary of the day in 1865 when news of the Emancipation Proclamation made it to Galveston, Texas. It was nearly two years after the proclamation had actually been issued. More companies are now making Juneteenth a company holiday, including the company I work for, Viacom CBS. And just this week, it became a national holiday signed into law by President Biden after it passed Congress. By making Juneteenth a federal holiday, all Americans can feel the power of this day and learn from our history and celebrate progress and grapple with the distance we've come, but the distance we have to travel, Jim. Coming up, a discussion about the history of Juneteenth, America's newest federal holiday. June 19, 1865, that date marks the occasion that Union Army General Gordon Granger entered into Galveston, Texas, accompanied by members of the U.S. Colored Troops. And the announcement was made that the enslaved African-Americans in Texas were now free. Dr. Rodney Coates of Miami University of Ohio gives us a history lesson. You got to realize, I mean, East St. Louis is a product of a race riot, uh, one of the bloodiest riots in Illinois. But it was part of a slew of race riots where, by the way, whites rioted against and targeted blacks. He says Juneteenth is a bittersweet celebration because the promises of freedom are yet to be pursued. Also, Michael Harriet, the senior writer at TheRoot.com, weighs in. He covers the intersection of race, politics, and culture. Many people who got the GI Bill couldn't attend college, even if they wanted to, because there was no place for them to go. And the federal government admits that they restricted the GI Bill as far as home loans to basically white people. And finally, Washington Post columnist Michelle Singletary and her emotional family story passed down through generations. The white owner came into the kitchen and she beat her for nursing her own baby on her own left breast. And she beat her pretty badly. And that story was handed down. And when I became a mom and I breastfed all three of my children, um, I always remembered that story and how inhumane that was. But first, Professor Rodney Coates of Miami University with a history lesson. Professor Coates, when did you learn about Juneteenth? I learned about Juneteenth at around six or seven years old uh, 
from my grandfather who um, uh, talked talked about it. What what did he say about it? Well, a little history. My grandfather was a uh, sharecropper out of Mississippi, uh, left Mississippi because of lynchings. Uh, he is actually a descendant of slaves. So he talked about it in terms of, of um, what it meant to find uh, from, from the conversation with his dad to, to have this, this shackle removed from their neck. Okay, and 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 uh, a, a bittersweetness because on the one hand you're free, but on the other hand, um, all hell broke loose. Uh, well, what does that mean? Well, uh, you get lynchings that get started. Uh, uh, he actually left uh, uh, the South because of lynching. Uh, he he was able to get to East St. Louis right around 1917, just in time for. Uh, a race riot, a race riot, by the way, because uh, white uh, meatpacking companies were uh, importing blacks from the South to take jobs of union white workers and uh, the chaos that that ensued. Um, I grew up in an apartheid city uh, where because of that, where whites lived on one side of the city and blacks lived on another. I actually graduated, oddly enough, from a school called Lincoln High School. So we we were well enshrined in the mythology associated with the Emancipation Proclamation and Juneteenth. You were growing up late 50s, 60s. Was that the time period? Yep. I'm, I'm a child of the 60s. I'm a Vietnam veteran being in Vietnam in 68, 69. So yeah, that, that tumultuous period of of civil rights and Jim Crow in the South. Yes, sir. And 100 years uh, 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 after the the Emancipation Proclamation and Juneteenth. Okay, exactly. You know, 1865, 1965, and unfortunately, a lot had not changed. Well, there there might be listeners who hear you say that even in 1965, as opposed to you know, 1865, that might surprise a lot of people. Well, I mean, I mean, think about something. Um, uh, I grew up where blacks were, and this is in the north. Uh, blacks were had to live on one side of town and whites on another. Uh, we literally could not go into certain areas for fear of being uh, harassed uh, by police. Uh, so granted, the formal uh, slavery had ended, but we then went into Jim Crow. And there were a lot of places that Blacks could not go, a lot of things that Blacks could not do for fear of being attacked. You got to realize, I mean, East St. Louis is a product of a race riot, uh, one of the bloodiest riots in Illinois. But it was part of a slew of race riots were, by the way, whites rioted against and targeted blacks. Juneteenth. Let's talk about that. There are a lot of people who don't know or at least don't understand the significance of Juneteenth. How would you explain it to them? I'd say that it represents an American paradox. On the one hand, the the promises of, that we all share that's at the base of the Statue of Liberty, the one that says, give me your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. 
there's this, this premise that we're all created by an all-powerful creator with certain inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the premise. That's the promise of, of America that we all embrace. And then that is confronted with the reality of now a hundred plus years, 155 years of trying to make those promises a reality for the majority of Black, Brown, and yes, Native American people within this country. So is Juneteenth a day to celebrate or is it a day to reflect? Both and to be active. It is a day to, yes, let us celebrate that a group of Americans finally came to the point where they said enough already. Okay, let us celebrate that. But let us also reflect on where we have come in this last 155 years. Let's let's talk about the Tulsa's. Let's talk about the Roselands. Let's talk about the East St. Louis's and the Cincinnati's, okay? Let's talk about these the the white angst that 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 became so nervous about black progress that they had to destroy those towns. Let's talk about the celebration that that the very first thing that the, that the slaves did that when 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 they found out that they were free, the very first thing that they began doing across this country was to create schools. The first public schools in the South were created by farmer slaves. It's interesting that the very first laws that came on the books about America, within America, to control blacks as slaves, denied an education. And the very first act of freedom that those blacks did was to create schools. And I find it interesting that as we march through that period, that one of the things that was targeted by racist attacks were not only educated blacks, but those schools that they created. Miami University professor Dr. Rodney Coates. Thank you. Thank you, sir. When we come back, theroot.com's Michael Harriet. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Michael Harriet is the senior writer at theroot.com. Among the questions I asked him, why he says this for justice to exist the victim must be made whole and their losses must be repaid what are your thoughts now that juneteenth is a federal holiday i think uh i think it's a good thing uh as a whole i don't think that uh it should have taken you know the george floyd incident and this summer of unrest to get here but i think as a as a whole i remember once a person asked me a couple of years ago who just discovered the history of juneteenth why this wasn't america's independence day because it was the first time all americans were free and it was a good question i'd never thought of it that way but i think on the whole it is a good thing and so you think at the protests surrounding George Floyd's death really made a difference here. Yes, I think in a way people a few people were looking to see what they could be 
what could be done. So there were companies that decided to give employees Juneteenth off. And uh, so I think it was kind of a response to that, although it was performative. Again, it did uh, on the whole make people think about the history of this country and think about uh, the past. So I think it's a, it's a good thing. Okay, so the momentum that pushed Juneteenth across the finish line and has now made it a federal holiday, do you think that same momentum will now be applied to reparations? I don't know if, if, if that's the case. I think, you know, on a lot of levels, Juneteenth as a federal holiday was something that was done almost in place of reparations as if it was a gesture that could placate people. So uh, I think, you know, in a sense, it might make it less likely because, you know, there are some people who will say, look, we gave you Juneteenth. What else do you want? I think a lot of people think that the GI Bill helped a lot of people, including African-Americans. I have a, a grandfather who served in World War II and came home. I believe he was able to go to community college because of the GI Bill. Um, but you're saying that the GI Bill and the way the money, the opportunity was distributed was uneven. Yes. Uh, so a couple of things that we have to realize about that. So in, after World War II, segregation was still in place. So there were only a few places that Black people could legally live and go to school. And so after those HBCUs, historically Black colleges, were pretty much filled Many people who got the GI Bill couldn't go attend college, even if they wanted to, because there was no place for them to go. And you know, the federal government admits that they restricted the GI Bill as far as home loans to basically white people. Uh, you couldn't, you know, if you were a bank in Texas, you couldn't get a GI Bill if you were uh, a, a home loan, a mortgage loan through the GI Bill if you were black, because the banks wouldn't lend. Uh, and when you look at the history of redlining, uh, that was a federally black backed program that restricted black people to certain areas and restricted to restricted banks to loaning money to black people or to people who didn't live in white areas. So the GI Bill, while it wasn't explicitly denied to black people in practice it was because we couldn't build the homes with it we couldn't attend the schools with it and it does you know there's a, a statistic that in new york out of 107,000 people that received the gi bill for home mortgages less than 100 were black uh and that was the case all across the country so again those tax dollars were used to create this federal program that black people couldn't participate in. So if black people in this country weren't participating equally in the new deal or uh, participating because of the GI bill, how does that impact generations of blacks? Well, it's, it's easy to see when you look at uh, the economic, the economy of this country. So, the greatest builder of wealth in America is home ownership. And if black people didn't have access to home ownership, then 
we couldn't build that wealth. And then those homes are passed along from generation to generation, even if you didn't get a home free and clear if you're white, right? Your parents might have put a second mortgage on their home, for instance, to pay for your college tuition. And so you got to go to college and come out debt free. That mortgage helped their credit rating. So you had a lower interest payment on your automobile loan, right? So those kinds of wealth building programs, they actually trickle down through generations because what we see from the economy is that it's it's not income inequality that separates people, it's wealth inequality. And that wealth, when it is not passed down from generations to, gener to generation, it creates these disparities that we see today. And now it's not just the people, what the white people who don't, who don't benefit from that. Right. So when we talk about the programs, the federal programs uh, that we use to help people who live in poverty, those we could, we could spend a lot less money on those things. If we, cured that wealth inequality. When you talk about crime, right, we know that socioeconomic factors are the biggest contributor to crime. So if there wasn't this big wealth disparity, we'd have a lot less crime. Those kinds of things could be cured with reparations because there's this, again, this entire class of people who didn't have access to the economic opportunity that America affords to most other people. You have written, it was... August last year, uh, during this social justice unrest because of the death of George Floyd and other police-involved shootings, you have written, for justice to exist, the victim must be made whole and their losses must be rep repaid. What does that sentence mean to you? I think when we look at any crime, right, the justice system as a whole, when you when the judge sentences someone, they have, you know, we, we look at the time that people spend in jail, but we don't look at the compensation that these people paid. Uh, if you steal someone's car, you don't just get a jail sentence. You have to compensate the victim. And it's true in almost every other part of the justice system. And so if we're talking about justice, you know, you can't just say you're sorry and it's done with. That's not justice, right? That's because it doesn't give the victim anything material, right? It only absolves the perpetrator of the crime. So for justice to exist, you know, if, if there must be closure and the closure, if it is something that was taken materially must be returned or the victim must be compensated. And I think that's what I mean by that sentence. It isn't just the slave owners. It, it isn't just the officials who took black people's wealth and gave it to white people that are the perpetrators of this crime, right? They're not, they're not the only thieves, but the people who received it. If you went to any school in America up until really now, right? Because schools on average, black school districts, are on average underfunded at about $2,666 per student, less than majority white school districts. And the majority, 60% of African-Americans attend a school that is majority black. So most black children attend underfunded schools, 60% 
nearly two thirds of every child, right? But that money isn't just, you know, dissipated into the air. It is used to fund white schools. So the white children are benefiting from the theft or the receiving the stolen property that the black children's parents paid. And not just paid, right? That's money that could have been used to buy those children's foods. Money could have been used to buy books, to send them on vacation, to help them learn. So everyone on the other side of the wealth gap benefits from the theft that is taken historically and currently from black people. So if you pledge allegiance to a flag that promises liberty and justice for all, and you know that there is no justice for black people, and you know that you are benefiting from the theft of black people's wealth, then I don't know how else to put it. And if I figured out a way to put it that was less harsh, I don't think the people who object would accept it anyway. It is not the words that they object to. It is the premise that they are benefiting from the theft. Michael Harriet, thank you. Thank you for having me. When we come back, Washington Post writer and author Michelle Singletary. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Michelle Singletary is not afraid of taking on some controversial issues. Reparations is an issue that she's tackled, the idea of restitution to black Americans for slavery and wrongs that have been done. Singletary, who writes for the Washington Post, discusses reparations through the lens of her family history. What are your thoughts as Americans mark Juneteenth? You know, my immediate thought of Juneteenth is that finally it's come into the mainstream. Um Lots of people were saying, I've never heard of this before. Were people celebrating this? And those of us in the African-American community said, absolutely. We know these key dates and um, we're just happy that other people recognize this for what it is, which is it's a holiday in a sense of it recognizes the struggles that we've had. And when you think of the federal holidays, the times where we take off as a country, they mark certain periods of time. Uh, and it, it's an opportunity for us to pause 
and think about the history of our country. Because you know, when they say, though, you know, we're doomed to repeat history if we don't study it. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm really thrilled that it's in the mainstream. You've written about how slavery is not really a thing of the past for Black Americans, and you write about your grandmother's enslaved great-grandmother. What are the stories that have been handed down through your family? Last year, I ran a series of columns called Sincerely Michelle, and one of the uh, parts was about reparations. And I, I thought about how do I have this conversation, which is such a hot button uh, discussion, just the word itself, uh, br- people bristle at it. Uh, and I thought I'd tell it from a story that I was told by my grandmother, who was told by her grandmother. Uh, um, and her grandmother was the daughter um, of a, an enslaved woman, um, Leah Drumright. And when Leah worked in the quote unquote big house, um, she was a cook and she also was a wet nurse. So meaning that she nursed her owner's baby. And every time my grandmother told this story, she, she would tear up. And so the, the woman of the house, the, the white mother told my grand, my great, great grandmother that she could only nurse her baby on her right breast and that she couldn't mix it up because that white owner believed that the breast nearest to the heart delivered better milk. And of course her baby had to have the best milk. And so one evening after working all day and tired feeding two babies, one of which was not her own, um, Leah was sitting in a chair in front of her fireplace and just forgot to you know, she switched her baby to the left breast, as many mothers who breastfed, you know, you switch your children. And and the white owner came into the kitchen and saw that, and she um, she beat her for nursing her own baby on her own left breast. And she beat her pretty badly. And that story was handed down. And when I became a mom, and I breastfed all three of my children, um, I always remembered that story and how inhumane that was. And so when I wrote about reparations, I wanted to tell that story of what was taken from us and really stolen. Um, And lots of people like to say, well, that was long ago, that, you know, slavery happened so long ago. Jim Crow happened so long ago. But I'm old enough. When I was born, I wouldn't, if I could have voted, I wouldn't have had the right to vote like everybody else. I, I couldn't get a certain job in my lifetime. And and so I was talking to a professor at Duke University for the, for the column, and he said, when you think of it in terms of generations, slavery wasn't that long ago. And he's right. And so you can't think of reparations as that I had no part of it because America prospered on the back of enslaved folks. And even after they were freed legally, they put in place policies um, that kept African-Americans, Blacks, from achieving. All Black GIs coming back from the war couldn't take advantage of the GI Bill. And part of the GI Bill increased home ownership for middle America. But we weren't allowed to do that by federal policy. We like to think of racism and systemic racism as individuals or individual companies. But there was a point in time, and still is to some extent, where there was federal authority 
that said they're not good enough to own homes, so we're not going to give them loans. And we know very well that home ownership is a key to the difference in net worth between whites and blacks. And so reparations is about saying, recognizing that, you know, nobody's trying to get a check for not for just being black. But there were things that were done to us that has kept us behind that we had nothing to do with. We couldn't fight against it because it was the law. When we come back, more of my conversation with Michelle Singletary. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Let's continue with Michelle Singletary. Everyone has an opinion. And I'm sure when you wrote that reparations column, you had critics. Were there people who chimed in in the comments section? What did you hear from people? Because there are a lot of people, there are organizations in this country that are staunchly opposed to reparations. Whenever I write about race, I have to brace myself. You know it's coming. You hope that it won't, but you know it does. So I received some of the most racist and vile emails from folks. But what hurt me to my core was emails that I got from people who should know better. I actually got an email from someone who claimed that he taught diversity courses for corporations, who who was saying things that I I just couldn't fathom you know, that we're overplaying this, that it's, you know, there is no racism, there is no systemic racism, there is no difference, it's all done. It was back way back when, when all, when there are plenty of studies that still show that, for example, when basically an identical resume, but one is black and one is white, that overwhelmingly the white candidates get a call back for a job, same qualifications. And so, I, I actually loathed in the past to talk about reparations because, you know, people hear right away, well, the black people just want to check. It's not about that. We just want a level playing field. And it hasn't been a level playing field. And we were never compensated for all that labor, all that discrimination. And it still plays today. It's hard sometimes looking back and thinking about Jim Crow, thinking about slavery, what your parents, grandparents have endured, and yet some people don't see it. Yeah, they don't see it. They think that we are playing the race card or we should just shut up because they look at those folks who are successful Black and say, well, if they did it, you can too. If you are walking along and you Uh, trip someone, your leg is out, or you did something to cause someone to fall. And you don't say you shouldn't have walked that path because you caused them to fall. You apologize and you try to make it right. But when it comes to what happened to African-Americans, there's like, you know, America tripped us up. And now wants to say, well, we shouldn't have to say we're sorry or, or, or pay for your medical bills. <laughs> you should have been watching where you walked. You know, how could you dare be on that slave ship? How could you dare want fairness in your job? 
this country benefited. They were able to produce goods at a lower cost and sell them. And people came here because of the prosperity. And why was there prosperity? There was prosperity because you enslaved people and you kept people behind and you didn't have to pay competitive wages to everybody. Um, and so all of that plays in, you know, comes into play. You know, we're not asking for a handout, we're asking for a hand up. And I've succeeded. People will say, well, you, how could you say that you're at the Washington Post? But you have no idea how I got there and how hard it is to stay there. How often people question my qualifications simply because I'm Black. You know, I walk in the door, it's like, oh, she got that job because she's Black. You don't even give me credit. I mean, when you have to constantly justify yourself. You know, you get to a place like the Washington Post and you think I've arrived and that people are constantly at the beginning of my career. Well, they must have had some, you know, quotas that they, she got here um, or she took a job away from uh, a white person. Uh, and how, you know, that that really works on your psyche. You you constantly wonder, well, am I am I good enough? Did they just hire me because I was black? And as we are about to celebrate June, uh, Juneteenth, um, I think about a conversation I had with my first manager, my editor at the Washington Post when I got there. And I have been hearing from friends and people, you know, wondering how did I get there? I got to the Post at a relatively young age and I'm in the business section. And I finally asked my editor, did you hire me because I was Black? And he said, yes. And my heart sank. And then he invited me into his office to explain further. And he said, I heard you because you were black. I heard you because you're a woman. I heard you because you came from a low income background. And we thought that that would help with our coverage of, you know, uh, low and middle income America. And he said, I heard you because I was at the time I was getting a master's degree in business and I had an expertise in bankruptcy. He said, we hired you for all of those. And I kind of in my head thought, well, didn't you, why did you start with all of that, dude? <laughs> you know? And he's and I said, well, why did you say yes to that first question? He said, because I never want you to um, think that you, that your blackness isn't an asset. It is an asset. Your cultural uh, background, how you were raised and what you went through and what your relatives went through makes you a better reporter. And I wanted you to, 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 to um, push your shoulders back and put your head up and realize that, yeah, I hired you because you were black and that's a good thing. And it makes me cry to this day because you know, I hope I've done really well at the post. I have a new book. And yet I still have people say or intimate that I got to the post just because I was Black, that it wasn't all the totality of who I was, which is what my editor was saying. It was the totality. And that still hurts to this day. It's so important to study the history of slavery and realize how it has impacted folks still to this day. Uh, and as we celebrate you, I'm, I'm just I'm thrilled that it is um, it is front and center of uh, America right now uh, and how important it is to remember that history and know that it's still not quite as in the past as people want to believe. And it is not about making anyone feel guilty. I don't want anybody to feel guilty. I want them to feel enlightened and take the time to to learn the history of what has happened to those enslaved folks even after they were freed. And then you perhaps will understand the journey has been hard and is still hard. Think about this, you know, this, you know, 
all these folks were enslaved and brutalized and family separated and sold and beaten and lynched and denied jobs and put you know, warehoused in, in neighborhoods that didn't have grocery stores or jobs. And think about how that impacted them psychologically. And just think about your own family, how hard it is to get rid of, say, legacies of alcoholism or even abuse. Now, now expand that to folks who, who for, 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 for years and years have been brutalized. So you can understand why there's some pathology still in our community, because who was getting therapy to, to survive slavery, you know? And just think about that uh, and, and, and just have some compassion and empathy. And, and then if we can come to that, then you'll see that with reparations, we're just saying, hey, just let's just... Let's just even out the playing field, right? Let's just build, to use the football analogy, let's build a willing, a, a, a winning team. So think of, you know, the quarterback and offensive line and defensive line and the kicker, you know, that's what we need in this country. We need African-Americans and white males and female and white females, and, you know, all, diversity brings so much to the table and it makes for a winning team. And that's really what it's about. That's how we will continue to be a great country and, 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 and create jobs if we all play on this team. And that's, we're just saying, can we, can we get a spot on the line? <laughs> and that's really all we're asking. Michelle Singletary. Thank you. Thank you. That was Michelle Singletary of the Washington Post, who is also the author of the book, What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits. Or to come on America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard... We think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, Juneteenth marks the anniversary of the day when the news of the Emancipation Proclamation made it to Galveston, Texas. Think about this. It took two years for word to reach slaves in Texas that they were free. Here's Mary Elliott, the curator of American slavery at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American Culture and History. The announcement was made that the enslaved African Americans in Texas were now free, keeping in mind that freedom had already come to them as early as January 1st, 1863, with the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation. So we talk about this meaning of freedom and an imperfect freedom. Well, the fact is the Emancipation Proclamation only applied to African-Americans who were enslaved in rebelling states, those states that had seceded from the Union and within those seceding documents, they mentioned slavery several times. And so it took a war, the Civil War, to enforce that Emancipation Proclamation, Texas being the farthest rebelling state, farthest West, and they continued that fight in Texas until, of course, um, 
the Union Army entered into the state and was able to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. But here's the what general important. order that General Granger issued on June 19th. It states, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly in their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. So freedom came to those in the rebelling states, but not to all enslaved people. It took the 13th Amendment to do that. But what's also important to note is in this passage, the limits of that freedom. Now you're expected to serve as a, a hired labor and the person who enslaved you is considered an employer. Can you imagine the limits of bargaining power for that hired labor? That's what we see what happens when you see those sharecropper contracts having to be defined and enforced through the Freedmen's Bureau. And the notion that you have to remain quietly in your present home, which is a slave cabin. And the fact that your idleness, the assumption that you will be idle is not supported. This is a general order that was issued by a Union Army general. It gives you a sense of what society, how society viewed black people, whether in the North or the South, whether in the Confederacy or the Union Army. That was Mary Elliott, the curator of American slavery at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American Culture and History. That is this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Begay's CBS, and on Instagram, Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.